from the Medical Republic, I'm Lydia Hales, and this is The Tea Ring. Concussion and chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE as it is commonly known, are increasingly in the news, most often when high-profile sports people are involved. But GPs and other specialists are frequently in a position to identify and help patients with the warning signs of neurological damage. Today, we're speaking with Rowena Mobbs and Alan Pierce on the latest in brain injury research and what it means for clinicians. Rowena is a leading neurologist in concussion, CTE and dementia, and a senior lecturer in the Department of Clinical Medicine at Macquarie University. Alan is a neurophysiologist who has spent 20 years researching sports-related concussion and is the research manager of the Victorian arm of the Australian Sports Brain Bank. Rowena and Alan, thanks for coming on the show. What are some of the most interesting things happening in concussion research at the moment? Well, I I think um, there's a lot happening as far as acute concussion goes. Um, As a neurologist, we'd always like to see um, brain health um, considered for the longevity of someone's career and extending beyond their sporting career. So I think it's really exciting, this new work, looking at the possibility of any long-term effects so that we can better care for athletes from their memory, mood and behaviour perspectives as well going forward and really hunting for that possibility of CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, um, as our work at Macquarie focuses on. Alan, did you want to jump in with anything? Um, oh, well, look, like Rowena has said, there's there's uh, a number of different directions that uh, this whole area is is trying to address, whether it's uh, things in the concussions, you know, acute concussion space, which is... Uh, not just trying to understand, you know, whether sideline head injury assessments are actually effective or not, but also uh, when is the right term, you know, return to play. So when when is the right time? Um, and that's a that's an issue that is trying to be grappled with right now because uh, uh, the big sports, uh, you know, um, have put in either eleven days or twelve days stand downs. Um, but we're not really sure where the evidence is for that. Um, we're also trying to deal with understanding kids and concussions um, and also uh, the emerging evidence coming from contact sports uh, being played by females. Um, so that, that's all in the acute space. And then, and then, as Rowena has said before, you know, we're also trying to address what are the long-term concerns, um, not just from concussions themselves, but uh, from the history of, 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 uh, of the athletes with uh, head trauma over their careers and, and what that could mean uh, long-term. And we're keen to hear about sports, and I will ask you about that in a minute. Um, there does seem to be some evidence that sportswomen suffer concussion more frequently than men and take longer to recover, but that research isn't so clear-cut. Can you tell us about these possible sex differences and why they might be particularly important for some patients, for example, those in abusive relationships, Rowena? Sure, Lydia. So this is a a relatively new area of research um, assessing um, female concussion, but certainly it needs to be looked at in a much more equalistic way. Um, The research and also the care, I think, needs to be addressed as far as um, females experiencing greater severity of concussion as well as frequency of concussion and this is multifactorial I I believe as are most things um, when we're talking the brain. Um, Of course there could be baseline 
um, gender differences, hormonal differences, for example. And one thing that comes to mind is post-traumatic migraine as a possibility for women in sport. Um, after head trauma, as you might imagine, the brain's pretty irritated and it could trigger chronic migraine as a state. And women get that three times more often than men. Um, so it's a, it's a really common condition. It's, a, I believe, accounting for some of the concussion and post-concussion symptoms that people experience. Apart from that hormonal difference, there may even be the anatomical differences of, of the um, size and you know, head and neck structure between men and women accounting for things. Um, possibly there is the different rates of presentation to healthcare and expression of symptoms. Um, so there's probably a lot behind this. Of course, women in the elite ranks of football is, you know, is relatively new um, uh, area and, and new elite levels through these football codes. Um, of course, we strongly encourage that and it's wonderful to see women in the elite ranks. We'd like to understand those women, but also right through to the grassroots level of, of um, females in contact and collision sports and understand what their patterns of concussion are um, diagnose early and manage well, and it may be that the management does vary um, from uh, male athletes. And so we just need more work in this area to really understand things. One, one of the things I'd like to add to that too, though, is that, uh, and, and we've done some, re I did some research back in 2017, um, that at the moment, and this is why we do need more research, because we need to get better markers of concussion, because uh, at this stage, the majority of the research is being based on symptom reporting uh, and the severity of symptom reporting. So what we have found, um, particularly from a study that I call Do As I Say, is that the men in particular are uh, actually less likely to be honest in their symptom reporting. So that could actually potentially skew the data because uh, what we were finding is that the men were less likely to actually admit that they had symptoms or that if they did, they would downplay their symptoms. And that automatically then starts to put a bit of, a bit of disparity in trying to understand, um, you know, how quickly people are returning to, to uh, you know, recovering and returning to play. So um, I think we can't discount some of that cultural aspects too um, in, in this mix as well. Yeah, so it sounds like similar to other areas of medicine, you've got cultural aspects overlaying some of the research there and complicating it a bit. So Rowena, could you explain a little bit for clinicians how they might distinguish between post-traumatic migraines and a regular headache or a concussion and sort of how those things are all teased apart? Sure. So the, the tricky thing about distinguishing post-traumatic migraine from post-concussion syndrome or, or even acute concussion within the first month or so is that the symptoms really do overlap. Um, migraine is not simply headache, as many of us sort of believe if we, if we haven't experienced a migraine. It can be other things like light sensitivity, sound sensitivity, tinnitus or ringing in the ears, mental clouding, fatigue, even things like double vision and weakness, numbness and tingling, a whole whole range of things, um, even dizziness, of course. So that's a common concussion symptom that and post-concussion symptom that does also occur in, in migraine or especially chronic migraine if it's experienced frequently and to a, to a greater severity. So really, the, I, I say the proof is in the pudding. So really, we ought to treat these patients empirically for chronic migraine if they're into that post-concussion phase and try and resolve their symptoms um, quickly because we are very good at treating migraine as neurologists. We've got a whole range of not just um, conservative approaches with um, physiotherapy and relaxation, 
um, some B vitamins for migraine, but there are specific medications. And then there are some very effective in injectable therapies, such as Botox therapy, botulinum toxin, that can do very well for people with chronic migraine. So I, I, I feel that until um, people are treated well for their migraine, we just don't know what's left and what may be residual post-concussion syndrome. And then also in the athletes we suspect may have chronic traumatic encephalopathy or CTE, there is commonly an overlap with headache syndromes again. So we do try to treat them well and, and actively for chronic migraine, just trying to improve their lives and, and reduce any mental fog and fatigue that is so common. It's only been in the last couple of days that news has come out about the extensive white matter damage in the brain of the late AFLW player Jacinda Barclay. And she was only 29 when she was found dead in October last year. She was also the first woman to donate her brain to the Australian Sports Brain Bank. And one of the things that is unusual about her very sad case is that um, she didn't have a history of extensive clinical concussions. Is that right, Alan? And what, what is this finding of the white matter changes telling us? Yeah, so I guess just a bit of a disclosure before we get into Jacinda's case is that I'm actually a fam family friend of Jacinda. So um, it was obviously a very uh, traumatic time, um, not only as a scientist, but also having someone that, you know, you know, um, has suffered from this. And so the finding from Michael Buckland at the Australian Sports Brain Bank was that uh, he had found uh, there was uh, uh, damage to the white matter, as well as uh, some capillary damage as well. And what we do know at this stage is that CTE in particular is, is a, I guess, reflective of exposure. So the longer you play contact sports, the greater your risk of CTE and also the greater the risk of severity. And in Jacinda's case, if you look back at her athletic career, she was playing a non-contact sport, um, you know, until her mid-teens, late teens. Um, uh, and she was a very accomplished um, baseballer, winning two medals at World Championships before she moved into American football and then into Australian football. But what we do know from um, oh, almost 10 years of, of imaging research uh, in the United States that um, you don't actually need to have any concussions per se in order to get white matter damage. It's, it's, it's uh, quite reflective of trauma. Um, even within one season, they've shown pre and post season in American football that uh, athletes can suffer from white matter damage. And so this is, again, reflective of trauma to the brain rather than concussions. Um, and this may or may not, we, we still obviously don't know if that's a precursor towards CTE, insofar the fact that the more trauma you get, then do we get white matter damage and the onset of CTE at some point, or are they separate issues? Um, and, and these are some of the, the questions that we need to address, but certainly we know that in the shorter term, uh, white matter damage is reflective of trauma to the brain um, over a period of time. Alan, I'm so sorry that you're, you know, obviously dealing with this personally as well. I hope that wasn't too upsetting for me to have brought that case up. That's that's okay. I mean, I, I've known the family for 25 years and, and uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, you need to... Uh, sometimes address as, as a um, being in this area. So, uh, no, I mean, as, you know, we're, I'm in close contact with the family and we're all, yeah, they're all dealing with it very well. Do you think that there is a growing awareness of the potential damage caused by subconcussive impacts? Can you tell us a little bit more about that, Alan? 
Yeah, look, it's yeah. The um, when when I, I've been in this area of research for nearly twelve to fifteen years now, and and in the earlier days, it was very difficult to try and describe subconcussion or subclinical concussion. Um, for many, um, it was it was almost a step too far, and so the discussion around concussions was easier. And but I think it also let, misled a lot of the public that the big hits were the issue rather than the um, accumulation of, of smaller hits. But certainly since, um, I guess, you know, the, the news of, of uh, Polly followed by Danny and then that more recently Shane uh, and even, even you know, last few weeks about Jacinda, uh, the, the public are now starting to understand that it's not just about the big hits and it's, it's also issues with... Um, you know, uh, heading of the soccer ball, for example, because we've had news from the United Kingdom where there are increased rates of dementia in, in play, people who've played soccer, for example. Um, and so I think the conversation is finally, after about probably eight or nine years, now starting to, to widen beyond just those uh, big hits. The AFL changed its concussion protocol this year so that players must now sit out for 12 days instead of six if they have suffered a concussion. And then when we look to the NRL, there was a a recent study that they contributed funding towards that concluded there were no direct links between head impacts and CTE. How do you think that our major sporting bodies here in Australia are doing in terms of keeping up with the research and protecting players from the potential consequences of head injuries, Rowena? Well, it's it's always good to see focus and awareness and progress in this field. Um, for me, it's not just not changing fast enough. Um, there needs to be, a, I think, a even more conservative approach on concussion protocols, allowing players more time, more space and more independent access to care, um, perhaps even second opinions. And there needs to be an approach of taking athletes off the field once they have very clearly sustained a concussion. I think if it's very clearly to the clear to the commentators that there's been a big hit and a concussion, they should be off the field. And, uh, you know, there there should be no ifs or buts about that. Um, There was there's been decades of research with um, suspicion around, you know, the symptoms of concussion taking um, quite some time to resolve and they can be delayed. And as Alan's work well illustrates, there are changes in the brain that extend beyond the symptomatic period of, of recovery and concussion. So an even more conservative approach is needed. We recently this week had a sumo wrestler who died after a concussion. Now, the details of that I'm unaware, but again, it raises concerns about things like cerebral edema. Um, possibly small, you know, micro hemorrhages in the brain or other changes. Um, and that, you know, when, when there's a background of concussion in the past for an athlete, they may have more easily sustained concussions and there could be even a, a more severe pattern and consequence of those concussions. For me, the, the question is now, can we move on and change the discussion, as Alan has discussed, to the longer-term effects of sub-concussion and exposure to um, long-term repetitive head trauma? When I'm in my rooms, it's very rare that a, that an athlete or a patient can remember the number of concussions they've had. There's a real recall bias there. And there's also a, a definitional issue. So I would explain a concussion as any symptoms after any head knock in a, in a practical way. 
and often people have misinterpreted that a concussion has to be a loss of consciousness, you know, getting knocked out or, or they have to be really, really confused or off their feet before it is a concussion. But it could be other things like the seeing stars or a, a degree of short-term confusion or double vision, etc. So partly I think there's education around athletes taking on their own, own health and ne neurological um, prognosis and really understanding themselves how they're going over years, not just days or weeks and in, into months and years. But partly there needs to be protocol and structured changes of, of attaining athletes' care and further education and monitoring over time. And I think that's where the, that both of our research is really stepping in that hopefully will make some real-world changes over the coming years in Australia. Alan, could you tell us a bit about the research that is happening at the Australian Sports Brain Bank into CTE? Is it right that you are looking for members of the public who have experienced head injuries of varying degrees to become involved in some of the research, not just your elite athletes? Yes, that's correct. So, you know, we, we know that CTE is not just an elite athlete issue. Um, it's not even an American football um, issue. So it's it's an issue that is much wider than elite sport. Um, anyone who is participating in contact sports um, at all levels uh, are, are invited to, you know, make uh, contact with the Australian Sports Brain Bank um, where we can send a, uh, a package of, of information um, for you to consider. Um, but, you know, it's, it's one of those things where we want not just those also who are, I suppose, concerned because they've, they've got ongoing issues, but even for those, just so we have a more of a balance as well, that, uh, you know, people who've played co uh, contact sports and, and sort of think, well, you know, I took a number of hits, but I, I feel okay. You know, for, for, for us and, and my research as well and, and at the Brain Bank, you know, there's there the sorts of what we call active controls that we want to understand. So we get a better understanding of, of what potentially the rate of CTE is, what may be the differences between the brains of those who have CTE versus those who've had comparable number of hits to the brain and may not actually get it because at this stage, one of the criticisms of the research is that it's biased towards those who are concerned about their, you know, themselves or their loved ones um, and those who uh, don't seem to be uh, having any concerns or don't seem to be having any issues think, well, may maybe my brain's not important enough. Every brain is important for our research. So uh, it doesn't matter what level you played at, uh, how long you played for, um, we, we would be uh, very grateful to uh, hear from you. And Rowena, I'm just wondering, as a clinician, how many patients, say per week or maybe per month, would you be seeing who've suffered a knock to the head in their day-to-day -day life or in sort of community sport and are suffering symptoms as a result of that? This is a great question, Lydia, and I think it's a question that needs to be asked of all neurologists and extended to GPs and sports physicians and neurosurgeons because when I went through medical school, we were taught to ask about head trauma but it was more from a perspective of have you been in intensive care or had a neurosurgical operation for your head trauma or had changes on your CT scan, that sort of extent. I wasn't taught to ask about their repetitive head trauma exposure due to contact sport. And there are a lot of cases I'm, I'm sure that I have missed and not been aware of for the history of this. But looking back, um, you know, over the past few years, I've certainly seen an increasing number of patients through the door with this. Um, I would estimate there's around 10 to 20 per week 
who have some kind of history, most of them do raise concern or their families raise concern about their background of head trauma. But sometimes it's patients that I've identified um, for other issues um, in the clinic that have a risk. And we, we are taking all comers to this program. We're trying to understand across the spectrum of head injury what the risk is according to the exposure to, to a number of years of repetitive head trauma. And I certainly do see women coming into the clinic um, mainly who have a background of domestic violence or family and gender-based violence and a risk, I would say, of CTE. But across the sports, I've got other athletes such as cyclists um, who have a risk. And, um, you know, there's even some some work, early work in horse racing and then equestrian or even there, there's some concussion work in diving. Not to say that the that that sport is a particularly high risk but we need to understand it and research it so that we can place the higher contact sports. I would say in my clinic that the boxers and the military um, vets with repetitive blast injuries do seem to show the most severe symptoms and that is consistent with the findings in the research literature. I, I wouldn't mind just taking a little bit up on Rowena's last point because I think it's really important that particularly for sports where uh, there isn't uh, I guess a, a regular occurrence of concussions, um, it is important that, um, I guess, allied health, but also GPs uh, and neurologists are, are, I guess, aware, like, for example, um, I've written a couple of papers uh, on concussion in tennis, because it's so, it's actually quite rare that when someone does, does get concussed, they actually don't know how to be treated. And there's been a couple of high profile cases, and, and one of them is um, Casey Delacqua, who fell um, and and uh, had a concussion, and it took her over a year to recover because she actually didn't have anyone to be able to help her because no one really thought that a tennis player could be concussed. Um, and there was a couple of other high profile players as well. So I think it's really important that you know while everyone is uh, in understanding the issue in combat sports and the contact sports, you know this is this is an issue that we can we can uh, talk about more broadly as well, and and to not dismiss. Um, those who have the occasional concussion is just a head knock and I think we downplay that a lot by just saying head knock and, and that's something that I'd like to try and change the conversation in the media away from is that word head knock because that really does uh, diminish the seriousness of concussion which is basically a brain injury. I, I would be keen to actually hear from you what the main things are that are holding back CTE research. Funding. <laughs> <laughs> Simple as that. I mean, uh, you, you look at the United States, uh, you know, they're, they're putting in over $100 million of research across both government and philanthropic and, and otherwise. Uh, and, and we, you know, they, we do have the mission for TBI, but that's sort of in drips and drabs. So at any one point in time, there's probably about five to 10 million being invested in this area. So, you know, we're, we're 10 to 15 years behind the United States. And I think given that uh, we're starting to detect CTE now in Australian sports, um, where at one point uh, there was a, back in 2011, there was a clear statement that we would never find a case of CTE in Australian rules football, for example, um, suggests that we do need to put in a lot more work and a lot more resourcing into this area. And I think holding back the work is partly a transition to neurological care. Traditionally, in medicine, concussion has been held um, under the care of sports physicians and sometimes neurosurgeons and, of course, uh, general practitioner specialists. 
Um, but if we're talking CTE, that's a type of dementia. And it best be placed, I, I feel, with someone who has experience in diagnosing and managing cognitive disorders, um, particularly neurodegenerative disorders. So, of course, our geriatrician colleagues and our neuropsychiatry colleagues come into the picture as well. So there's a, a really national, big national issue here needing some big national changes. And so I agree with Alan, we need more funding and we need, um, I would say, government input to really coordinate and... and um, uh, you know, expedite these changes that are needed. I would also add on on the front of um, when you're on the front line caring for patients, remember some key red flags that could indicate that they may have underlying CTE. And that would be not only the number of years of exposure, I guess once we're upwards of nine years in the American literature, you may be certainly looking at a, a patient who could have CTE risk. And uh, even two years may be enough. And keeping in mind their loss of insight or awareness into their condition, then um, understanding whether they do have any mood or psychological and behavioural dysregulation changes. So you may have an irritable patient who then has some behavioural outbursts of anger and rage that are uncharacteristic prior to their sporting uh, head or other head trauma exposure and understanding a pattern of decline of cognition. Um, so particularly of the memory or the learning type memory, so that day-to-day -day episodic memory that we rely on to really be flexible in our job. Um, some patients um, may have difficulty of that and it may also impact their relationships. For example, their spouse may need to pick a very, very good time to tell them important things because they're not understanding and recalling so well. And there may be changes of empathy and, and other things affecting that relationship. So really important just to, as always in neurology, listen well to the history, take a repeated history, and then perform cognitive testing, such as using the Adam Brooks Cognitive Examination, ACE3 Australian version is a very good screen to detect some early cognitive changes. Um, with our research team, we will be working up some um, other um, screening panels and, and screening tools that may be used in future. So I, I appreciate everyone's um, support in that research effort. And uh, if you're interested, I'm more than happy to be contacted about this.